Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. Some of my best memories are from sweaty shows in punk house basements. I'm sure it's the same for many punks. That sense of community and belonging as the houses shook with sheer volume. But punk houses supersede makeshift venues that scare the neighbors. They are living, breathing homes and sometimes places of refuge. Lauren Anzaldo is part of the 309 Punk Project in Pensacola, Florida. 309 is an artist-run collective in what is arguably the oldest standing punk house in the South. Lauren is a veteran of punk house living. She says these houses were the epicenter of the punk scenes in the Florida cities and towns she grew up in. Social and creative spaces for punks to cook food, make zines, plan for protests, and take care of each other. Part of 309's mission is to keep DIY culture alive in Pensacola, including holding events and hosting artists in residency. DIY punk scenes around the world, take note. 309 Punk Project is a model for upholding untainted creative expression. My name is Lauren Anzaldo, and actually still getting my mind around it, but about two years ago, I earned a doctorate degree, so I'm Dr. Lauren Anzaldo, but I've been in the punk scene for 25 plus years, started in my teenage years in high school, gotten introduced to seminal punk music from various friends, one thing leading to another, and then really in my junior and senior year of high school, used to go to shows all the time, two, three, four times a weekend as much as we could, and then kind of continued on that into college and lived in a variety of punk houses and then have continued somewhat in that vein, you know, with some uh, breaks and slow down a little bit as I've become a full grown grown up (laughs) and have children and go to work and do all that other kind of stuff, but still just went to a show the other night. So still going out to shows and involved and really probably the ethos and the philosophy of punk probably more so permeating through my life, you know, at different times than the music but still have a huge heart for it, of course. And you shifted into social work. You Mm -hmm. spent a lot of your adult life so far doing that. Right. I hear about the punk house stuff. I never lived in one myself, but just the camaraderie and community of those houses Mm -hmm. and a lot of helping each other out and supporting, probably dealing with a lot of mental health conditions as well in the houses. So I'm wondering how that transitioned into your work that you do now. 
It all sort of evolved in a very natural way that I didn't think about so much at the time, except upon reflection. I always look at punk and activism as very much interrelated and almost inseparable in my mind. Most of my punk interest and the music I listen to, some of the ones you followed, like Propagandi, Submission Hold, you know, going back to Dead Kennedys, even Sex Pistols at times, just some of the early stuff, pulling things through Bikini Kill, these different bands that really had a political, very overt political message and talked about the system, social services, the need to take care of people, poverty, homelessness, feminism, sexual assault, all these kinds of things being brought up. And so for me, those things were so interconnected to the point that it was a part of my teenage years. It was a part of my growing up, understanding and deconstructing a lot of those things about society. I first became politicized through punk music and hanging around other people who had their consciousnesses raised through punk music and through the people that were part of that. So started participating in Food Not Bombs when I was a young person. And so we would distribute literature. We would pass out, you know, zines and feed homeless people and and interact with them. That was the big difference with Food Not Bombs was it was very public. It was very much drawing attention to the issue of poverty and the discrepancies between capitalism and, you know, these people who are basically thrown away by society. And we would interact with them, eat with them, talk with them, just be friends with them. And that was living our values, living out our punk ethos. And so through that, I, you know, met different people, made different friends. And one of my best friends at the time was in social work school. I grew up from a working class, working poor family. My family were laborers. So those professional jobs, I really didn't have a lot of exposure to them. So I wasn't even really aware. So honestly, I never even heard of a social worker before, which seems <laughs> weird, but I never knew anyone that was one. When my friend was telling me about it, I was like, well, what's that? So to me, it was just an extension of the service and the volunteerism and the activism that we were already doing. You know, I don't think I thought about mental health in that perspective amongst my friends until again, kind of reflecting back um, at the time. I don't say that people didn't talk about it, but they didn't talk about it the way we do now. You know, growing up in the 90s into the early 2000s, it just wasn't necessarily something that people spoke about openly. There was certainly substance abuse going on and people might talk about that, but in terms of like how it interconnected with mental health issues or knowing people who were diagnosed with different mental illnesses, I started knowing people who went to therapy and that was more so around trauma. People who have been traumatized and they would talk about how they were going to therapy. And of course, we were young adults, so we were just beginning to figure out our lives. From what I've heard of punk houses, again, I'd never lived in one, but I've played shows in them and definitely spent some time in them. This idea that basically putting a lot of faith in other people, mm -hmm. punks are responsible folks for the most part and very caring. But I mean, it is a bit of a sketchy situation sometimes with the punk houses. Mm -hmm. You took the 309 Punk Project, which is saving an old punk house and using it for art and creativity and mm. promoting punk and DIY. I'm wondering how that looks between when you lived in them and now what you're mm -hmm. doing with the 309 Punk Project. It's interesting that you say about being sketchy and things like that. And sometimes we get asked questions about, you know, oh, is it dangerous or how did you all share the bathrooms and things like that? <laughs> Those more the underside of, of the life, I guess. We were generally all friends with each other. And so it didn't seem sketchy at the time. Again, we were young and we probably made a lot of mistakes that in retrospect, we probably shouldn't have done. But no, I don't ever feel like it was dangerous or anything like that. I mean, the worst thing would be like someone wouldn't pay their rent or they skip town and you get stuck with someone's bill or something like that. But there wasn't necessarily any sense of 
danger that people were hurting each other or fighting with each other or anything like that. I mean, we generally were stand up people and respected one another and, you know, and wanted each other to be successful and, and happy and, you know, kind of work together and all of that. So for me, like the punk scene and the punk houses, which were sometimes an epicenter, the scene itself, of course, is bigger and comes and goes and all that. But then there would be these houses where people would congregate and sometimes people live there. Sometimes they would just go there and hang out or they would have like parties or whatever. They were always these creative spaces. Like when I had roommates, when, you know, I lived in St. Pete, Florida before I moved to Pensacola. So that's kind of my origin, you know, comes around from different part of the state. Gainesville, like where we met at the fest, things like that. I grew up in that kind of area. The people in the houses were always putting on shows. That was one thing. You always had house shows, usually if you had a punk house. And they would make food together. That was a big part of our cultural identity was cooking. A lot of people were vegetarian or vegan, so they would, we'd have to cook our own food because you couldn't find it in places. So you'd wake up and you'd make meals together. And then you'd be listening to music and cooking. And then the whole day would just kind of evolve with a bike ride or this or that. So there was just a very creative, interactive space where you just had this group of people that kind of had your back, looked out for each other, and, and but they hung out together, you know. And they may be in bands together. They may be doing Food Not Bombs together. We might go to protests together. We might write zines together. We did things like that. So it was very inspirational in the sense of encouraging each other to be their best. It didn't always pan out because I think punks, like a lot of times we have big ideas, but not necessarily the follow through all the time. So we talk about like, oh, we're going to start this community garden. Well, we might all go out there one day and like plant flowers or something, but you know, then no one ever goes back and waters it and nothing ever comes of it. But it was just always kind of like inspiring each other to do different things. One of the things I did was organize a youth liberation conference. Many of my friends would organize conferences. They did distros. They did things like that. So we were just always encouraging each other, at least when I look at the positive aspect of it. It was that encouraging one another, that creative space that came out of that. And some of the greatest people and the most prolific people would often be the ones that were around and kind of encouraging everyone like, hey, let's do this, let's do that. And then folks would kind of like glom onto it because you got this critical mass of people who are all working together. To continue into like what it's like now, I mean, I lived at 309. 309, our claim to fame is for the longest continually inhabited punk house in the South. There's debates about exactly when, but it was sometime in the late 90s. Still punks live there and still a punk house in that sense. But we are also doing events there and doing things there and, you know, have this artist in residence space. So I get touched almost every time that I go, because I don't live in the house anymore, but how the artists come in and they do different things with each with their own energy, each with their own creativity, with whatever their particular type of art is that they do, whatever they're making, whatever they're doing with the space that they really like take ownership of it. And when people come in, they're just amazed. And it's almost like a different place every time you go there, but then it's got the bones and it's got the structure that's like the beloved space as well. So it's really cool to me just how that creativity can like permeate through. I can feel home there, but I can also feel like it's fresh and new every time I come in and different people are there and it's inspiring. It's exciting, you know, and it touches me in a way where, oh, I can't believe I get to be a part of this. It's really grounding. It's interesting how you talked about all the things that go on at punk houses, the cooking, the listening to music together, the having shows in the houses. I think there's a misconception out there because of what we've seen in the mainstream around punk rock and that, you know, we all congregate at these shows and we all smash into each other and mm -hmm. all these trappings of punk rock that you would think of. But not a lot of people think about the fact that this is a community 
a lot happens behind the scenes with activism and Mm -hmm. that's missed with a lot of how people see punk rock and people don't really realize what kind of support systems we provide to each other and Mm -hmm. how we can help each other. And I think for me, the thought of a punk rock house, a punk house is really a place where I would imagine people would come from bad situations, from places where they have to go and get away from something. And when you were in the punk houses, did you find a lot of folks were, I don't want to say fleeing, but coming to a safer place with a punk house? Yeah, I mean, something that we talk about. So when I'm speaking, of course, like I have a very Florida centric view, like I've grown up in Florida, not to say I haven't. I mean, I've traveled, I've stayed in squats and punk houses in the UK and things like that on my travels. But my lived experience has really been in Florida and specifically in Pensacola for the last 20 plus years. So I can't speak to LA. I can't speak to New York. I can't speak to like Austin and some of these other places and what might be going on there. One of the things we had commented about was We have this book called Punk House in the Deep South that looks at the 309 punk house and the similarities between a lot of the backgrounds. This isn't my choice of term, but someone had made the comment. It's like, oh, everyone came from a broken home. A lot of us grew up in like a military family, something like that. Basically, we're from working class families and often had divorced parents or difficult relationships with our parents. Not necessarily like fleeing a domestic violence relationship or something of that nature, Again, we didn't necessarily articulate it that way. We just sort of were like, eh, screw them, whatever. This is like this chosen family. And some more than others. Some people really like they didn't have a family. They didn't feel like they could ever go back and talk to their parents. Some of them, because they had come out as transgender, some of them were just very feminist or very progressive and their families might be very conservative or whatever the case may be, what the reasons were, some more than others. I have a good relationship with my family, but my family has a lot of issues too, like a lot of substance abuse, a lot of physical abuse, a lot of bad choices and things like that. I don't think we necessarily all said, oh, we came to this place because we had this bad background. We didn't think about it that way at the time. It was just kind of like very normalized. But when we start looking at like the themes and and talking with one another, we're like, oh, we all actually have like pretty similar family upbringings and things like that. A lot of talk about chosen family. And I always mm-hmm. found that punk rock was like that. Yeah, You go absolutely. to a family event or a event in general, and you have to zero in on that person that you think you can spend a little bit of time with and choose to be your friend. I would imagine that would be pretty prevalent in a punk house coming in and latching on to this environment where maybe there is a role for this person, a role for that person. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you've got this family. Does that ring true to you? Yeah. I mean, like I said, people were often encouraging one another. One of the things we also were known for in Pensacola was we do these house band feuds. So at one point, there were multiple punk houses, not just 309, you know, five, six punk houses that were in a fairly small geographic area. And so the houses would challenge one another, like you form a band, we'll form a band, and we're going to have this (laughs) competition kind of thing. So it was generally like a positive encouragement. Of course, sometimes there's negative behaviors, drinking, a lot of drinking, oftentimes that you can kind of be spurred on by other people doing that and, and you're kind of right along with them. But definitely there's the big brother, big sister, like sibling kind of roles and things like that. We have a pretty intergenerational punk scene in Pensacola. We're a pretty small town. So there were often like the high schoolers and the younger kids. We had the Young Feminist Alliance. And they would come around when they were like 16, 15. And many of them are still around. But then we had like these older folks who had been around for years that were like in their 30s and 40s. 
So we sort of had this intergenerational thing, but generally it was just, you did have those people you could look up to and talk to about what was it like, you know, you saw this band back in the day, you were at CBGB's like, oh my God. It was definitely that family kind of environment, but definitely that friend environment. And it still is in a lot of ways. What was your role at the house or houses that you lived in? I'm sure I played different roles depending on where I was. I lived in a punk house when I was down in St. Pete. It's funny when you ask me that question because I'm I'm kind of self-critical. And so my role generally was grumpy person who wanted everyone to clean up. (laughs) That's probably (laughs) what my roommates would have said. I know I have at least one former roommate who probably would never live with me again. I mean, a lot of times punk houses for all the joy that we make them out to be are kind of dirty and gross. (laughs) Like people don't do their dishes and the toilets don't get cleaned and, you know, stuff like that. I wasn't that old necessarily at the time, but I might've been a little bit older than some of the others. And I also had a job. I had graduated college when I moved to Pensacola. So I was in my early twenties and now I think, oh my gosh, I was so young, but at the time I felt so mature and I had traveled and and been overseas and stuff like that. So yeah, I was probably kind of like an older sister type. You know, we kind of mentored each other in a way. When you're doing social work now, do you ever have a twinge of, oh yeah, punk house, that was something that I learned back then. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, you know, we talk about a lot is just, one, why did we live in punk houses? One reason we lived in punk houses was because we liked being around our friends and it was fun and you got to interact with people and, and have people around. I grew up in a very large family where people were coming and going all the time. I have some level of anxiety, like being home by myself. I don't really like to be all by myself. I like to know other people are there. I don't necessarily want to talk to them, but I want them to be around. It's comforting. So there's a certain level of that. Like I didn't want to live by myself, but also we've really lived there because they were cheaper and you share rent with other people and you cook with other people and you kind of have that communal living. When I'm talking to clients or, you know, interacting with some of my folks and very few of them have been punks, they're struggling financially. I'm like, man, why don't you just get a roommate or something? But people are like really opposed to that. And obviously there are those dangers that you said, like you can get ripped off, you can get robbed, you can get assaulted, you can get different things like living with people you don't know, but it's just such a different world of like kind of where I came from. I don't know. I think people just pick up on the sensationalized part of it. Oh, you ate out of garbage cans and like you live with these people and your bathrooms were dirty. Like that's gross. Yeah. If you think about it like that, you know, there's all these like beautiful aspects to it too. And it's kind of hard to connect sometimes with that, with someone who's not from that background because they just sort of think of the nasty parts of it and they don't really see the beauty of it. And I don't want to sit there and spend my time trying to like convince them of like, no, no, it's great. It's not about me. It's about, you know, it's about that person and what they're going through and like what's going to work for them. But certainly the communal living, I feel sad. My heart breaks sometimes for some of my clients who are very lonely and they're very um, disconnected. And I try to encourage them in, it doesn't matter if it's punk or like bird watching, you know, whatever it is, you need to find your community. You need to find your people. And I'll say that to my clients sometimes, it seems like you haven't found your people. You haven't found like that community that you feel like yourself. And there's a lot of people that that that's the situation. And I can give them suggestions and ideas, but ultimately it comes down to like, what's their passion and what drives them and that they have to figure that out and find it, which is something that some of us in punk have done. And we figured that out, but it's hard for people to figure that out many times. How is your history with living in punk houses and being part of the punk scene and doing activist activities within the punk scene influenced your education? 
it sounds like you learned quite a bit from those experiences. Yeah, I did learn quite a bit from those experiences. Sometimes I learned to manage expectations and also to know who you can rely on and judge people by their character and like the fruits of their labor, what they are, what they say they are, you know, and there's many great people. So that was the great thing was have a renewed sense of humanity oftentimes like over and over again, because you had people that would show up and that would stand with you and support you. But I feel like I learned so much at a young age that sometimes now I'm in meetings and I go to things where we have to like organize events. I grew up booking shows, like I said, promoting things, organizing, organizing protests, demonstrations, conferences, all these different kinds of things. I sort of had the feeling for a very long time that there was nothing we couldn't do. That we could basically do anything we put our minds to because I saw it all around me. My friends put together bands, they produced albums, they recorded, you know, they literally sometimes recording in a bathroom and like putting them out on a cassette tape and spray painting the covers on the front porch, passing them out. No one would let anything stop them. They just did whatever they got their mind to. And so I think for my early years into my 20s, it was like, yeah, we can do that. Of course we can do that. And then all of a sudden you kind of get involved in more of the professional world and you start hearing people tell you like, you can't do that. <laughs> we don't have enough money for that. How are you going to do that? Wait a minute. <laughs> I've done all this stuff. It's a whole different atmosphere. I'm a very much get involved and do it kind of person. When I go to committee meetings or the stuff that I do now in my professional life, I usually am an organizer. I usually am getting the word out and kind of making things happen. And really all of that came from my punk background. I don't think I would have had any of that growing up in the kind of community that I did, a very rural community. My family wasn't doing that. They were just sitting at home watching TV and reading the newspaper and kind of like going about their workaday lives. They weren't out there on the streets, like telling people the system is messed up and we need to do these things and we need to like advocate. So that all came from my education as a punk and all of the political education Oh, the MOVE organization in Philadelphia, you got to read this book about them. The Zapatistas and Chappas, you got to read about them. Angela Davis, all this stuff I learned about through my punk friends, not through school, not through any <laughs> classes I ever took. So one of the major pillars of what you're doing with the 309 Punk Project is preserving DIY and punk culture. What does that mean to you? It's that same thing. DIY, obviously doing it yourself, you know, that it's artists, it's musicians, it's writers, it's people in the creative realm. They're doing these things and we need to celebrate them. We need to support them, the community. You know, we can be spending money and supporting people we value and care about who are doing things that we align with rather than supporting, you know, other corporations and things that don't have our best interests at heart. So that part of the DIY aspect to it and just that fact that punk is not just some something you see in the again in the corporate world or it's not like what's been handed to us we create that we make that ourselves and we have something to offer people can come and enjoy and be like oh this is really neat and that may not be their whole end all be all of life they may not identify as a punk but they see the value of what we can offer and there's so many talented artists and again writers and musicians and producers creative people out there and so to be able to like bring them in and also infuse that into this little, like it's kind of subversive because they live in this little rural conservative Southern town. And we're like challenging and pushing against that all the time with some of the people that we're bringing in to say the world is so much bigger than what we think we see here. 
There's so much more out there. Don't define us. Don't tell us what we are and what we believe. We will make our own decisions. We will make our own beliefs and values. And we like hold that up and try to really shine a light on that through the 309 Punk Project. That was my conversation with Lauren Elnzaldo of the 309 Punk Project, 309punkproject.org. I now have a Tee Public store where you can buy Scream Therapy merch. So head over to ScreamTherapyHQ.com, support the podcast, and get some fancy new duds. Big news over here in Scream Therapy land. The Scream Therapy book, Scream Therapy, A Punk Journey Through Mental Health, will be published this spring by Mansfield Press out of Toronto. The book features my story and the stories of others who use punk rock as a catalyst for mental health. To pre-order the book, go to ScreamTherapyHQ.com book. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Scream Therapy. I'm coming to you from Powell River, a small coastal town in British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Klohomin Nation. Doing this podcast and talking to other folks living with mental health challenges has been a huge part of my journey. It means the world to me that you're out there listening. You can sign up for my newsletter and find more episodes at ScreamTherapyHQ.com. That's ScreamTherapyHQ.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Let's talk punk and mental health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, take care and be well. You can